0: done. Well, Merry Christmas to you and welcome to Crossroads Church. Man, I am so glad. Uh, that we are here today. Man, I love this time of year. If you are joining us online today, uh, welcome to Crossroads Live. Why don't you go ahead and let each other uh, know that it's Merry Christmas and where you're viewing from. I want to say hello to Fort Lepton campus as well as all of you who have joined us here at Thornton today. If you are brand new with us, uh, welcome to Crossroads. My name is Matt Manning. I'm the senior pastor here at Crossroads Church and uh, we are in the Christmas season and my hope and my prayer is is that maybe this is your first time but certainly that it would not be your last time uh, coming to Crossroads Church. My hope today is as we go through some of our Christmas stuff today that you would uh, consider coming and joining us on Christmas Eve, whether that be online or uh, out in our parking lots at Fort Lupton or here at Thornton, and that you would uh, make this a part of your uh, spiritual journey as we're into this. Last week, if you weren't here, we started a brand new series uh, called My Christmas Gift where we're looking at the three gifts that the wise men or the magi brought to Jesus the very first Christmas really as a way of like preparing our hearts uh, for this Christmas season and what's going to happen on Thursday. Now I know that when we jump into uh, and start talking about the wise men there's some like Christian trivial pursuit that happens and the question that's always asked of pastors is like how many wise men are there? And so I'm going to give you the definitive answer today, all right? So if you're taking notes you'll probably want to write this down because it's going to show up on a quiz sometime in your life, all right? Here's the answer. We have no stink an idea, all right? It could have been three. It could have been a dozen. You know, we go with three because there was three gifts. Tradition tells us that there were three. When you get a nativity set, you get three wise men in the nativity set, so there's that. But really, we have no idea when it comes to the wise men. What we do know is that they were incredibly wealthy. They were well-educated. They came from the east, and they came looking for someone who could possibly be the savior for the entire world. There is only one place in all of our Bible that we find the wise men mentioned. They're mentioned actually as the Magi, and that is in Matthew chapter 2. And so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead, turn to Luke chapter 2. That's where we're going to be just for a few moments today. In fact, if you want to know Christmas stories, just go to chapter 2 in the Bible. Luke chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2, that's where we find the Christmas stories. And in Matthew chapter 2, verse 10, this is what we're told that when they saw the star, that's the magi, the wise men, when they saw the star, they were filled with joy, with happiness, excitement. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped Jesus. They opened their treasure chest and they gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, I had three kids and we received no myrrh, no frankincense, and not a single person gave us any gold, all right? That when we had kids, we got like gifts that everybody gives kids, right? We got passies and binkies and blankies and toys that made like annoying sounds. We got the all-important, all-purpose baby snot sucker, you know those things, the little blue ball. We got the butt thermometer, like those are the gifts that we got. What kind of gifts are these? That when the wise men show up and see baby Jesus swaddled in a manger, the gifts that they bring are frankincense, myrrh, and gold. And as we discovered last week, that not only were these gifts valuable and practical, but they were also deeply spiritual. That these three gifts represent what one day Jesus will become um, as he lives out his life. Last week, we looked specifically at the gift of myrrh, and we discovered that when it comes to myrrh, myrrh really represents Jesus' mortality, his humanity, that myrrh was a common embalming oil that was used in the ancient Near East that really signified that one day that Jesus would become the suffering servant, that he would die on the cross for the sins of the world. On Christmas Eve, we're going to talk about gold, and gold was the gift of royalty. It was given to kings, and it marks really the kingship of Jesus, and today, we're going to talk about frankincense. Now, as we get into frankincense, before I tell you really the significance of it spiritually, I just want to talk a little bit about what frankincense is. Now, this might surprise you, but I'm not like an oil guy. I'm not into essential oils or even really lotions, all right? That's just not my style, but I know someone who is, and her name is Christy Griesbach. And so for this sermon, this over the last couple of weeks, she has become like my essential oil advisor in this, all right? And I have a whole like text conversation of frankincense with her and how excited and how much she loves frankincense. Now, part of the reason that she loves frankincense is because of how many functions it has. Now, if you're a guy like me, just consider frankincense like the Swiss army knife of essential oils, all right? Like, it can be used as an antiseptic, like if you had a bug bite. It's used to help GI issues, if you have those kind of things going on. Uh, It can lower blood pressure, reduce inflammation. Uh, When it comes to its aromic frequency, I have no idea what that is, but Christy says that's really good, all right? So that aromic frequency actually calms people down. But when it comes to frankincense, frankincense served a ton of different purposes. But in the first century, it was an incredibly practical gift that helped with sickness And to bring about healing by treating wounds. And at the time of Jesus, it was very, very expensive. Now certainly, while frankincense was a practical gift to give new parents for their new baby, more so, frankincense was the oil that was used as incense when sacrifices were made by priests uh, to take away the sins of the people and that as the smoke rise, it would represent the people's prayers." It's why Bible scholars, no matter what Bible scholars you read, that they all agree that when it comes to frankincense, that frankincense represents the deity or the priestliness of Jesus. Now, I know for some of you, when I say priestliness, you think to yourself, you get a little panicked, and you go, Matt, we're not going all Catholic here, right? Like, that's not where we're headed today. Like, Like, what's this all about? What's this high priestliness of Jesus all about? And so what I want to do today is I want to answer those good questions, that we're going to take a look at frankincense, and in doing so, as we look at frankincense, my hope is is that when you leave today, you'll understand what it means that Jesus is our high priest, our great high priest, and why it matters this Christmas, whether you've been a Christian for many years, or this is your first time ever in church, okay? Okay. And so that's where we're going to begin today. So understand that when it comes to priests, that priests aren't just like a Catholic thing. Priests are like a very biblical thing. That in the Old Testament, we had priests. They were were instruments, really, that were used in the Old Testament. And when it came to the Old Testament, the priest had just one main function. And that one main function was to represent the people before God. That was their only job. That was it. Represent the Hebrew people before God. Now, the way that they lived out that function was in two ways. First is, is that they would offer sacrifices for the people for their sins, and two, that they would pray to God on behalf of the people. That was the role of the priest. See, in the beginning pages of Scripture, when we get to Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sin, what we have is the holiness of God collides with the sinfulness of mankind. Now, you might not think that that's such a big deal, but it's actually a huge deal. When it comes to our culture, we don't really like to talk about sin, do we? We actually like to refer to our sin as like mistakes, like, like we make mistakes in this world. We don't really sin, like we don't have a, a lot of space for sin. And in fact, when it comes to our culture, we're even moving away from the mistakes and sin mentality to a place, really, if it feels good, do it, right? I mean, that's what our culture teaches. If it feels good, do it. If it's good for you, then it's true for you. And if it's good for me, then it's true for me. In fact, in our culture, we even have a saying, and the saying goes like this, that I know my truth. Now, that is a ridiculous saying. as if truth can be something other than what it is. But basically what it's saying is if it's true for you, do it. And if it's true for me, then, then I do it. Like, there's Who has room for sin? There's no need for sin in this conversation. But here's the challenge for us. If there's any inkling here, in our hearts, that any of this in the Bible is true, then we have to understand the holiness of God and the collision that it has with the sinfulness of mankind. We have to truly understand the holiness of God because if we do not understand the holiness of God, then we will always treat sin casually in our lives. And if we do not understand the holiness of God, then we will never realize the tragedy and the depth and the cost of sin in our lives. See, the Bible teaches us that God is holy. Most famously, we find it in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, where the prophet Isaiah, one of the big dog prophets of of the Old Testament, he's writing, and he has this vision of heaven, that he's seeing heaven and that he's seeing the throne room of God, and around the throne room of God are these angels, and the angels are proclaiming by day and night all the time, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Now, if you grew up in church, you were probably rightly taught that the word holy simply means separate, to be separated. In the Old Testament days and Bible times, holy was not a religious word. That holy was just a common word that meant distinct or to be separated. That's what it meant. Now, when it was applied to the scriptures and used in religious language, what it come to understand or what we come to understand it to be is this, is that God is distinct, that God is separate, meaning that God is in a class all on his own, that God is transcendently distinct. He is transcendently separate. He's perfect in every way. There is no flaw. There is no stain in him. There is no imperfections. That he is in a class all his own. That when it comes to his holiness, what we have to begin to understand and begin to realize and see is that God's holiness is not one of the many attributes that God has. It's not one of his many attributes. That when it comes to the holiness of God, we have to realize that the holiness of God is the perfection of all of his attributes. That God's power is holy. That God's mercy is holy. His his grace is holy. His wrath is holy. His justice is holy. His glory is holy. God is holy. That's what he is. And the problem is, is that we're not. Because of our sin, we're not holy. Not you, or you, or you sitting on your couch at home. That none of you are holy. Not that sweet girl that you sit next to in your, at your workplace. Not your sweet grandma. No one is holy. In fact, the Bible teaches us that every single one of us, every single one of us has sinned. All of us have sins. Now, very simply, when it comes to sin, sin is anything that dishonors God. That's what sin is, the dishonoring of God. That when it comes to the dishonoring of God, Really, the way that we should think of this is as an effort to rob God of his glory and treating this great God as somehow inferior in value to what I desire in my sinful self. That that's what sin is, dishonoring God. Now, to help you kind of maybe visualize this, what I want you to pretend is that there's an American flag up here. And if I was to walk over to that American flag, the flag represents our nation, it represents who we are, it represents the glory of our country. And if I was to take that flag and rip it off the pole and put it on the ground, and then trample on top of that flag, we would call that treason, wouldn't we? We would call that treason. And treason, no matter where you're at in the world, is a capital offense. Treason is a capital offense. Anywhere that you go in the world, treason is serious. It's serious. So how serious might it be for us to trample on the glory of the most glorious being in all of the universe? See, the Bible tells us the trampling of that kind of glory, the committing of treason before the glorious being that is God is punishable by death. That every single one of us deserves death, that every single one of us has at one time or another treated this great God as somehow inferior, robbing him of his glory, committing treason, and therefore every single one of us deserves death. This is why God hates sin, that it's, that it's everything that he's not. It's, it's the opposite of his holiness, That's why God hates it. It it disrupts our relationship with him. And so because God is holy and we are treasonous, we're sinful, there is a divide that happens that we cannot cross, not by, like, good intentions, not with good motivations, not by trying harder, that we cannot cross this divide. And so the question that we ask is not why do we die. We know why we die because we're sinful. The question is, is why do any of us live when we commit this kind of treason against God? This is where the priests of the Old Testament entered in. See, in the Old Testament, there was a special day called Yom Kippur. You guys know Yom Kippur? Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Yom Kippur before. Yes, Yom Kippur, in the English, is called the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, what would happen is that there would be a sacrifice of an innocent animal made on behalf of sin. And so the high priest would go, and he would find a lamb, a ram, and that was spotless, that was without any problems, pure, and he would take that ram into what was called the Holy of Holies, and there in the Holy of Holies, he would sacrifice that animal, and after he had sacrificed that animal, he would go over to the incense, and he would begin to burn frankincense, and as he burned the frankincense, smoke would arise out of that incense, and that smoke that rises to heaven would represent the cries of the people for the mercy of God. And as that smoke rose, the priest would then begin to pray on behalf of the people, that God would show mercy to them. And he would take the blood of that slain lamb and he would begin to sprinkle it on what was called the mercy seat of God as he prayed for God's mercy. It was a picture of an innocent one dying for the guilty one. It was a temporary payment for the sins of the people. See, this is the way that God set up the Old Testament to reconcile his holiness with the sinfulness of man, bringing them together, reconciling them, so that people could be in relationship with God. But it was just temporary. So taking that understanding of the Old Testament, of God's holiness and and our sinfulness, and the way that the priest would be used to represent the people calling upon the mercy of God, we read these verses in the New Testament in the book that we call Hebrews in chapter 4 and 8. Listen to these words. It says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our, to our confession. That is our belief, our faith. Hold fast because Jesus is our high priest. Well, what does that mean? Verse eight, uh, Chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. Is we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. Now, there's a lot there. Let me unravel it for you. Let's start in chapter 8, verse 5. Do you see the quotes when it was on the screen? Those quotes are—there's a reason that those quotes are there, and those quotes are there because those come from Exodus chapter 25 specifically verse 40. Now, if you're new to the scriptures, if you're new to studying the Bible, here's a little tip for you. That if you ever come across quotations in the scripture, pause, find out where those quotations are, and then go read that passage, because oftentimes that will lead to greater understanding of what you're reading. Simple Bible tip for you. Now, if we were to do this in this case, what we would come to find out is if we went back to Exodus chapter 25, we would see God is talking to this man named Moses. Now, Moses was like one of the big dogs of the Old Testament, that he was the leader who who delivered the Hebrew people from Egypt, from their captivity under Pharaoh, into freedom. That's who Moses is. And in Exodus chapter twenty-five, God is speaking to Moses, and he's taken the people of Israel to a place called Mount Sinai, and he's saying, This is what it looks like to be my people. This is what it looks like to worship me. This is this is how you make sacrifices to reconcile my holiness and your sinfulness. This is what the role of the priest looks like. This is where you're going to worship in something that was called the tabernacle, which was like a big tent that they set up and they worshiped in. Like all of this, God is giving to Moses in Exodus chapter 25. Now, when it comes to this this passage, God is speaking to Moses, and he's saying, this is your instruction. This is how you live for me. This is what it looks to worship me. And what the author of Hebrews in the New Testament is doing for us is what he's saying is that the furnishings and the actionings of the Old Testament, all the things that were wrapped around the tabernacle and the sacrifice and the priest, all of those were just copies and shadows. They were like pointers of of something more significant. They were symbols of heavenly realities, of eternal realities. That when God gave Moses the pattern for worship, it wasn't like God was just making it up on the fly and going, animal sacrifice, that's good, do that, yeah, yeah, do that. No, no, no. What he was doing is he was patterning off of what was happening in heaven. And the point is, is that when Jesus comes as the Son of God, He's not coming just to fit into some earthly priestly ministry. No, 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 no. He's coming to put an end to that ministry so that all eyes are pointing to him, that he's that he's making it so, so that all pointers, our attention is on him ministering for us in heaven. That when it comes to the Old Testament tabernacle and priests and sacrifices, all of it, all of it, the New Testament says, we're just shadows. We're just pointers. We're just symbols of something greater to come. Now, let me help you understand this because this is huge, maybe a step further. That This is Christmas time, so let's go all Charles Dickens. And for a moment, I want you to pretend that I am the ghost of Christmas past, all right? And I'm going to take you all the way back to when you were seven years old. And you're shopping with your mom in a mall. Do you remember when we used to do that? And you're shopping with your mom in, your ma- in the mall, And you and your mom, you get separated. And in your seven-year-old self, you do what every seven-year-old does. You begin to panic and you begin to have fear in your hearts because you can't find mom. And you don't know which way to go, you don't know where to look, and so you just choose and you just run down one of the aisles. And as you get to the end of the aisle, and as you start to begin to cry because you can't find mom, all of a sudden, there's a shadow that looks like your mom's around the corner. And for a moment, there's happiness and joy in your hearts. There's hope. Now, let me ask you, which is better? The shadow that looks like mom or mom actually walking around the corner? Of course, it's when mom walks around the corner, isn't it? When you can wrap your arms around her, where she can hug you and say, it's going to be okay. Like, that's happiness. That's real hope. That's what's going on. The foreshadow, the foreshadow of Jesus becoming our high priest. That's what Christmas is. That Christmas is the replacement of the shadows of the Old Testament with the real thing that is Jesus. And the foreshadowing of the gift, a gift of frankincense, which was used to represent the prayers of the people, is that one day this baby swaddled tightly in a manger, would grow to be the one person, the one person who would mediate between you and God the Father, the one who would, who would reconcile, represent, make us right, praying, not as some earthly priest of the Old Testament who is dying and sinful and broken. No, as the Son of God in all of his strength, in all of his life, life indestructible, in all of his realness. See, this is the real thing. This is heaven. This is the shadows that Moses was was working off of in Exodus chapter 25. And because of the gift that we saw last week in Myrrh, what we come to realize is that Jesus is not only the sacrifice for our sin, but also the high priest who makes the sacrifice for our sin, who represents us before God. He represents us before God. And listen, this may be, it may be the Christmas gift that you need to open most this Christmas season. This might be the one that you need to open the most, realizing that Jesus is your high priest, able to relate to you in every single way, mediating for you in heaven. See, he understands everything about our life. Our strengths, our weaknesses, our greatest joys, our temptations. And He walked through all of that and He did not sin. He empathizes with, with your pain. Whatever you're going through in this very moment, He understands. He understands. If you feel stressed right now, like you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, Jesus knows what's that, what that's like. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he knew stress, he knew agony. In fact, in that garden, he fell to his face in agony and he cried out to God, God, I'm pained to the point of death. If you know anxiety in your life, he's been there, he understands. He was raised in a small town where everybody whispered behind his back who his daddy really was. He was ridiculed and bullied, criticized. He was tempted by the devil time and time and time again, and yet he did not sin. In his weakest and most vulnerable moments, he did not sin. That Jesus experienced the death of friends, he lost loved ones, and he even felt abandoned on the cross. He wasn't abandoned, but he felt abandoned. If you remember that moment on the cross, it's a huge moment in our scriptures that Jesus is hanging there. And he feels like God has abandoned him. Because when Jesus was on the cross, he took on our sin. He became sin for us. And because of the holiness of God, he could not look on the sinfulness of man. He could not look upon Jesus. And so God turned his back on, on Jesus he turned his back on Jesus and in that moment Jesus felt completely abandoned in life to the point that Jesus cried out my God my God why have you left me why have you forsaken me if you've ever felt in your life like you just couldn't quite reach the presence of God Jesus understands Jesus knows He's your high priest that sympathizes, empathizes with you in every way. He knows your hurts. He knows your pains. He knows your greatest joys and your greatest triumphs. And he's not sitting in heaven going, tough to be you. No, he's in heaven looking down on you going, I know what it's like to experience that. I know what it's like to have that kind of pain in the human body the emotion of being rejected by others, the agony of hurt, the feeling of being alone, the feeling of being abandoned. Who's Jesus in this moment? Jesus is your high priest who also wants to be your savior. That's who Jesus is. And every once in a while, when I'm studying the scriptures, getting ready for our sermon, there's these moments where I read a passage like this passage in Hebrews chapter 8, where I've read it a thousand times in my life, but there's a truth that just hits me and I just push away from my desk and I just sit there in the awe of the goodness of God. In the awe of the goodness of God. Listen, Jesus himself is priesting over you. He is your mediator, representing you and he is your sacrifice. He was the innocent one who went and died for the guilty so that your treason would not be held against you. Oh, what good news of great joy that on this day, some 2,000 years ago, in the city of David, the Savior was born, Christ the Lord. And the angels break out singing just like they did in Isaiah chapter 6, holy, holy, holy. His glory fills it all. Glory to God in the highest. It's the scene of Jesus in the manger, representing everything. One day, we come to understand that some 30 years later, that Jesus will be in the altar, the altar of the cross, and on that altar, his body would be broken, and his blood would be poured out for the sins of the worlds. It was our high priest that gave his body and his blood to be sprinkled on the mercy seat of God. It was Christ as our incense representing us before the Father for cries of mercy in this world. But here's the thing. It's only good news if you believe it. It's only good news if you trust in it. That Jesus came as a baby, swaddled in that manger, grew, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, for your treason. Three days later, he rose again, proving he was who he says he was. And in doing so, you can find forgiveness. And the Bible is so clear. It says that anybody who trusts in the name of Jesus will be saved. That the blood will be sprinkled on the mercy seats. And God will forgive you of your treason. See, the reality is that we're not made right with God. That divide between his holiness and our sin, we're not made right because we, we try hard. We're not made right because we're good. We're made right because of the perfection, the holiness of Jesus living on this earth. If you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior, we want to have the conversation with you. Very easily, you can just text the word Jesus to the number on the screen. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to go to communion, and we're going to remember the table, the sacrifice, the altar of our high priest. Father, Lord, we step into your presence, God. <laughs> Lord, confronted with our very own sinfulness, the brokenness of our lives, the reality that every single one of us have, have stomped on your glory and committed treason. And in that, God, we are incredibly grateful, thankful, Lord, to have such a merciful high priest who came into this world experiencing everything that we experienced and yet did not sin, perfect in every way to represent us before you, and then he took it even a step further and he sacrificed himself, that he became the innocent one that died for the guilty. And so for that, God, we give you thanks because that's what Christmas is. It's Jesus giving his life for us so that we might have life, so that we might have hope, so that the shadows would pass and that we could wrap our arms around you, experiencing the reality. And so, God, we give you thanks. Like the angels, we sing, holy, 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 glory to God in the highest on this day. And Lord, we remember your sacrifice now. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And so in those final hours before the cross, Jesus took the bread and he ate saying, this is my body broken for you. And then he took the blood, poured out on the mercy seat. And he said, every time you drink of this, Remember that this is the forgiveness of your sins. This is God's mercy. And so we drink together. This is just part of the reason that I love the Christmas season. The other is because we get to sing some Christmas carols. And so as we move into worship, if you need prayer online, just hit the button. We have people to pray for you at any time if you're in-house at Fort Lupton or here. If you need prayer, just head to the back, and we would love to pray for you, all right? How about we stand as we sing these songs together?